Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm and the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome back to the Capital Club podcast. Today I'm here with a very special guest, Niall Gannon. Niall, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Brian. So I heard you present at, I think, my first ever IPI conference. We've been members for a long time. This is back when Charlotte was still running the show. And you just kind of blew my mind, honestly, talking about this net of fees after tax return, as opposed to just gross returns. I didn't even know, like, this just wasn't in my realm back then. And I went back and listened to two of your presentations and they're actually, given that we're recording this in September 2022 during a hellacious market, they're they're very prescient and also germane. So let's just start kind of big picture here. What made you focus on this effective tax rate investigation and, and what conclusions or, or what were you able to kind of inferences draw from your investigation into it? Well, Brian, thank you. And as you said, the Institute for Private Investors is a an organization that both of us have been involved with. And throughout the history of that organization, they've been monitoring the asset allocation of members, their returns. And it really was in their Wharton program, their private wealth program, that that continued to press the question of do high tax bracket investors get the same returns as their institutional peers? Suspected not, but didn't have concrete proof of that. And so then 
looked and looked and looked for studies about taxation. And, and of course, there have been studies in the past, but they would use median tax brackets, not the top. They wouldn't include defective state taxes, which can be as high as 13%, changing the returns for an investor in New York, Florida, or California by wide margins. So it was in that course that Charlotte Beyer and Dr. Marston pressed me to, to do the study. And so we decided to peel the onion all the way back to the inception of the S&P 500 in 1957 and literally model every single year, offer the ability to toggle down to zero state tax state taxes are up to 13 or 14 and study did the high tax bracket investor truly get paid for risk? And the answer was no. So it meant that we needed to rethink asset allocation, stop taking these esoteric institutional models, the endowment models, because we will get different results and we're going to get paid a diminished premium for every unit of risk that we take. And so hopefully we can unpack this in the talk because even though it was super fun to do the study back to 1957, your listeners today are going to want to know, what do I do now? Family just sold their business for $100 million. It's in cash. What steps should they take to build an informed view about further returns, about risk, and about yield? Yeah, we've known each other a long time, so we got right into this, but I'll do your bio very quickly. Niall is frequently listed as one of America's top financial advisors. He's really written the book on investing for high net worth families, challenging the industry with research on reaching better investor outcomes, net of everything. So a very good segue into the conversation we're having. And like I said, I went back and, and listened to your presentation from 2005. And I wanted, you probably don't even remember some of this, but it's, it's very prescient. You talk about Buffett saying that only buy something that you'd be perfectly happy to hold if the market shuts down for 10 years. The presentation you put together, what's it's called, what's wrong with this picture? A Wall Street alternatives, quote unquote, truly a prudent alternative to quality, long only investing. And you are concerned about this at the time, this would be 2004, 2005, this big allocation shift to hedge funds. And, and famously, they've really underperformed so I'd, I'd love to just get your sense now that you have a look back and you can Monday morning quarterback, given what you were saying in 2005, what happened in 2008, and now what we're about to enter into is seemingly another recession in 2023. Like, Just give me your broad picture thesis about what's happening and, and what you've experienced and what you've learned from past downturns. Okay. Back to 2005, that was a controversial lecture or a presentation to give. Because at that time, as you remember, wealthy families and even endowments were reaching or breaching 50% of illiquid investments. There was something in the back of their minds that said traditional stocks and bonds won't be enough. Therefore, if I take that leap up on the risk platform, theory says that I should be paid for that. And, and the problem with that is that we have debated, and I think successfully, that this efficient market hypothesis or the theory of randomness, it is wrong over the long term. And you don't get a gravitational force acting on an asset class just because you wait long enough or just because it's the S&P 500. Because when you break down these things into 10 and 20 year segments, you see a huge variation in returns over, over equity investments. Private equity will, will rhyme with that. And of course, when you look at the hedge fund industry, as a whole, 
they tend to look like uh, that balanced portfolio of stocks and bonds if you diversify across the space. So really it was it was to say to that family, and again, they have a dollar of virgin capital that hasn't been invested. What should I be thinking about right now? I have a, a granddaughter that was just born. She's, she needs 18 years compounding. Volatility means nothing in her uh, college account. And maybe, and maybe the trust that we'll provide for her really blooms when she's 40. So how do I make decisions and not get stung by those errors that we've seen happen in the pension world, right? Five trillion in underfunding now in public pensions over in the UK yesterday, you saw the same thing. Pension funds betting on these, um, on these spreads between asset classes and then assuming, hoping, that they would just continue. So the failure that you've seen in, 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 in the pension world need not be repeated by the individual investor. And you come from a family who has had a liquidity event. It's even more important. In fact, one time we had the chat, is it possible to build something that will even be close to the understandability or the returns that you had in the original family business? And if not, let's study the true potential. Let's, let's be skeptical about risk. And before we invest a dollar of capital, let's give the green light. You know, the captain has done the walk around to the plane. We don't need to take off until everybody's comfortable. That's the mission for these, for these families as they invest. Yeah. I mean, once I started getting into this family office world, I, and I've started doing some homework. Obviously, I read your book, attended your sessions, et cetera. I never understood why families would want to institute this endowment model on a because it's a non-taxable entity with a very, very long time horizon and a very low distribution limit. Most families don't operate like that, period. And then the other just confusing thing to me was I would meet a family that had a liquidity event within the timber industry or manufacturing company. And then all of a sudden they would turn around and want to become experts in hedge funds. And I just never understood, you know. It just didn't. It just didn't track for me in terms of leveraging the skill set and just being reasonable. So let's go through this checklist. Like, if you have had a liquidity event, if you do have, as you put it, this virgin dollar to put to work, especially given today's circumstances, what do you do? So let's let's look at a, a few of these examples because I think we can learn a lot from the extremes. This this theory of efficient markets. It may be true on the average regular humdrum day. But if markets are not efficient at peaks or at troughs, and that's when we need them to be. And so when a family has a liquidity event, you need to stop, take a time out and say, where are we right now? And 1982 would be the first area where I would direct your listeners to study because that's an incredible piece of history. In 1982, the Dow had been pretty much flat for 16 years. It hit a thousand in 1966 for the, for the first time. And you had it oscillating up and down. It did have a 5% dividend yield along the way, but it was essentially flat at 1,000 for six, 16 years. If you looked at the earnings yield of stocks, it did indicate, because equities were so cheap then, that you definitely had that opportunity to compound long-term at 10, 11, even 12%. And that's exactly what happened, right? I mean, the next 30 years was 12, except the 30-year U.S. Treasury was trading at a yield of 14%. 14%, which means that you get paid nothing for a unit of, of, of equity risk. So think back to if you were a pension or endowment or, or a wealthy family with a 14% U.S. Treasury for 30 years, you can literally buy that asset and go to the beach. 
lather up with Hawaiian Tropic, Van Halen on the radio, Brian Adams, now, BG's hair. Now we're talking. Now we're talking. Now we're talking. So, so that was an interesting period. And we just hit the 40th anniversary of that. And so you, you go back and you look at those times. You go back to 2000 was, was another period where the bond market offered a free lunch. And so, so few people saw it. We were entering what we know now was the lost decade. But in 2000, in March of 2000, the S&P was trading at a, a 30 times PE, which meant the earnings yield was three. Our hypothesis found and proved that that was the minimum expected return going forward. But high-grade municipal bonds were trading at 6%. AA, AAA municipals in your home state sometimes insured general obligations with the full taxing authority of a government agency. So that was a period where the markets were literally priced to allow the investor to equal weight fixed income or debatably overweight fixed income. And if they didn't need the money, you know, stripped municipal bonds or stripped treasuries offered a premium even still. So those are the two periods, 1982 and 2000. It's fun to go back because you have to say what data points were available to them that point in time. Super important. Then we fast forward to today. Yeah, it's September of 2022. We've got a macroeconomic picture. We've got $5 trillion of capital, which has been infused into the economy that debatably could not be repeated. Therefore, the unit of growth and sales has to, has to have an asterisk next to it. You've got the inflation that, that resulted from that, the short-term amplification of that with, with the Ukraine war and the food supply disruptions. So right now, where that puts us right now, you know, you look at the S&P trading at 3650 and $220 of earnings per share for 2022. So you have a 6% earnings yield. That's your minimum expected return from this point going forward. And I should say, going back to 1957, there has not been a 20-year period, a 20-year rolling period where that minimum expected return wasn't met. You can earn a little bit more, but you won't earn less than that. Then you look over to the bond market, You've got the 10 year treasury now breaking through the four mark. Tax exempt municipal bonds now are at four and a half percent. So let's grab the calculator and the pencil and say, well, what does four and a half percent mean in, in a muni? Well, even if we are not in a resident of that state, that's equivalent to a 7.4% U.S. treasury. What would happen, Brian, to the SEP right now? If the 10 year or the 20 year treasury went to 7.4%, it would not do well because investors would say, I can get paid a competitive rate on safety. Therefore, equities must produce something north of that. What if that investor is in California where she or he pays 12% additional on their 37% federal? Well, they keep 50 cents on the dollar of a treasury, which means, you know, on a four and a half percent bond for them is equivalent to a 9% taxable equivalent. So it's an incredible opportunity right now Unlike what was the case three years, three years ago, where safety is now paying, you know, because you do have to ask yourself, if I can get a 9% taxable equivalent, what is my outlook then for equities long-term? What's my outlook for hedge or private equity or commodities? They must be able to justify something there. So this concept right now of learning about the fixed income markets in my first book, which is somewhat dated right now, I do take a default study all the way back to 1870 and, and talk about what you should expect because 
You don't want to say, here's the 200-year default average because the default average that matters to us is what happens right now going forward. So we stop right there and higher fixed income allocations can certainly be justified. And then looking into 2023, you're seeing the futures now start to talk about cuts that the Fed actually going back to easy monetary policy. So if you're if you're waiting for the yields to go much higher and 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 the Fed may be getting late in the game in the, in in this tightening cycle, you don't want to wait too much longer if you're under allocated to that asset. That's a long answer to the question, man. <laughs> I'm so sorry. No, I love it. I mean, you just the energy is incredible. Just like when I heard you do the presentation, and so that's the question. Like I've got a series of questions, but. The next logical one is bonds. I was reading this morning in the Times, the bonds have had the worst year record performance since at least 1926. And oddly, they've performed poorly at the same time that the stock market has performed poorly when they're supposed to be the safe haven hedge. And you talked about this lost decade. There's a lot of anxiety on the investor side that we're about to enter, enter into another lost decade of stagflation. What do you think, and I'm going to ask you to open up the crystal ball here and and dust it off and see what's going to pop in your head. Well, with the crystal ball on long-term bonds or any equity or risk-based asset, there is no way to dampen the short-term volatility. The the difference with your bond, let's say you you bought $1,000 worth of bonds a year ago, rates have gone up and they're trading at 90 cents on the dollar. The difference with the bond is, is you've got a, you've got a certificate where the issuer owes you par at the end. The issuer owes you the coupon rate and it owes you par. So if you go back then to, let's say we're investing for this baby girl that was just born and we need the asset in, in, in 18 years, the volatility of that is meaningless, absolutely meaningless. Because if that same dollar worth of bonds goes to 110 or 120, that is also immaterial because you're looking for that asset to achieve its long-term compounding. And so with bonds, that short-term volatility is going to happen no matter what. You know, we have been in this constant downward slide in interest rates that started in 1982, where we had that 13, 14%, and then traced that all the way back to zero. And I think a lot of investors would say the reason that they didn't invest more heavily in fixed income is they always thought that the rates were too low and that they were going up. But now we know the 40 years, it was, a, it was a straight leg down. But you go back to what does a bond give you in its, in its raw form? And it is a fixed rate of return coupon and a fixed price at maturity. And if you understand that that volatility along the way means nothing, then you can move forward with that. And if you cannot withstand that volatility, you can't take duration risk in your fixed income. It means you have to stay on the short end. And by the way, the short end are three or at three or four starting to, starting to feel pretty good. But like the CD investors of the eighties, those folks saw their income cut by 70, 80%. And so short term rolling of these assets, which don't have duration risk and seemingly do have a nice coupon right now. They cannot compound at the at the rate that that we need them to. So you know, looking out right now. So if two hundred and twenty dollars a share is the earnings estimate for for twenty twenty two, and maybe that that drops a little bit in twenty three if this recession deepens, which I think from a planning standpoint you need to brace yourself for that. It also speaks to what kind of assets do you own, and let's unpack that Warren Buffett comment for a second. 
your family, my family, most families that built their, their wealth by owning a business that they understood. They could count the widgets, the units of soda, the number of logs that were going down the river. And so the more esoteric the assets become, even to the point of ETFs or funds or mutual funds, the investor really doesn't know what he or she owns, right? Because at the end of the day, and again, this has been proven time and time again, our return as equity investors is going to be a function of the accumulated profits that we earned on the business. Over 20 years, that's that's what you're going to see. Plus, plus earnings growth and inflation and minus earnings declines if that's the case, right? Because we're not guaranteed to have an upward slope in our sales units and, and in our earnings. So I think right now, if you're if you've just had a liquidity event, you're saying, I want to put a dollar of capital to work. And let's say that if 60-40 is that theoretical starting point for a balanced portfolio, if you're one of the people that said, look, I took the equity risk for 40 years or 50 years, I think I'd like to be safer now. And I think my allocation may be closer to 50-50. Well, you have to start buying that fixed income portfolio now, right? When these ETFs blow up and when these mutual funds have redemptions, tens of millions of dollars hits the market and they need to get cash by the close of business. So they can't be choosy on price. So the choosy investor can be on the buy side of the market, wait for the right pitch. And I don't think you want to delay too much longer on putting that fixed income tour. And then, you know, with your equities, because of the uncertainty, and I, and I hate to, to kind of dumb it down to this dollar cost averaging, but some of the smartest folks in asset management right now will tell you unequivocally, there's a big, I don't know out there. I don't know about Putin. I don't know what Kim Jong-un is going to do. I don't know what the global markets are going to do if he overflies a missile over mainland Japan. I don't know because we've not had period like this where the economy shut down for a quarter. We inject five trillion of assets. So this, this I don't know thing justifies a slower and more diligent approach to getting the money put to work. And by the way, I don't hear anyone right now saying that there's a party about to start on Wall Street. We need to get involved immediately and start leveraging up. But even if you believed that that was the case, err on the side of caution and, 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 and let that, let that capital slowly evolve into the target portfolio. Buy on red days, establish some, some points where you're not going to overthink it and buy companies and sectors that you understand. You don't need to buy. 5,000 stocks to have a diversified portfolio. So buy things that you know, buy companies that you know will withstand a recession, possibly gain market share, acquire failed competitors. So I think that's the, that's the drumbeat for today. I want to echo a comment you made. We talk about this on the show a lot. The difference between volatility and, and capital loss, right? In terms of when you were talking about bonds, that volatility is meaningless if you hold them to duration, as long as you don't trade out of the position. Right. Right. And so I, I want to, you mentioned the geopolitical risk. On your presentation, you have a comment. Headlines often predict market tops and bottoms from a contrarian standpoint. Mm -hmm. Could you unpack that a little bit for us, given everything that you just reeled off in terms of all yeah. these horrible things that are happening in the world? Well, meaning no disrespect to other book authors, but there were two very popular books in 2000 at the peak of the tech bubble. And if you go back and remember once we got to January the 2nd of 2000 and the world didn't end because of Y2K and, and everyone, everyone had upgraded their computer systems and their, 
their networks and their firewalls. And it, it looked like, okay, we made it. Let, let's keep going. And, and the two most popular books at that point were The Great Boom Ahead and Stocks for the Long Run. And I remember being at a bookstore and, you know, there was a dusty copy of Graham and Dodd's Security Analysis, which is the most boring, you know, doorstop, big fat book. But it basically talks about this, this issue of every asset is, is, is a function of the cash flow and the profit that it delivers year after year discounted to today. And so I was wondering why those, those other two books were flying off the shelf at 30 times earnings on the S&P. Were they saying that you could compound at 10% or more from that multiple? So if you privatized every company in the S&P at today's market price and just delivered the profits to your bank account in a check, it was 3%. That's what a, a 30 PE mean. Were they really thinking that you could compound at 10% or more? And of course, the answer is no, right? We had the lost decade and then the decade after that was okay. And the compounding wound up being five and a half to six from that moment. But it's really important. How could you, how could you have any economic basis at all for saying that 10% was, was a possible long-term compounding rate? from such an inflated multiple? And then how could you thumb your nose at the fixed income yields, which were 7% on treasuries and 6% on high-grade munis? How is that possible? So you go back and then you say, okay, what did we learn from that period? The headlines were telling us everything was okay, but all you needed to do was to pick up a calculator and say, on any company, let's just say all you owned was ExxonMobil, all you owned was Coca-Cola, just pencil out if you owned the whole company and it was private, what is, what is the profit that you could expect, you know, to send to your checkbook at the end of the year? And so the headlines can sometimes be predictive from a contrarian standpoint because they're saying, Hey, everything's fine. We made it through Y2K when. In fact, we were staring into the abyss. And by the way, 9-11 isn't the reason the market crashed. It's not Enron and WorldCom. It's that stocks were too expensive in March of 2000. Yes, those events amplified the slope of the decline. And then, and then look at some other examples. We know that 08 and 09 was a terrible period for financial assets, for real estate, for banks. But we know that the market bottomed in March of, was it March the 10th? Of 2009, when the S&P printed the number of the beast, 666, investors can remember that. Well, the headlines at that point were miserable. If you look at the Wall Street Journal, I mean, they were saying it's going to get worse and worse. And in fact, it did. But the market did bottom March the 10th. But then bank failures continued and didn't peak until 2010. And then you look out to August of 2011. And then S&P downgrades the U.S. Treasury to AA from AAA. And you have another calamity again flash crash and that volcano created an, another mini um, mini recession. So those headlines, we've got to do something better than what are they telling us on TV? What does the cover of Ford say? Because if we go to our grandmothers or our great grandmothers who lived through the Great Depression, very simple understanding of the arithmetic of investing is, 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 is what's needed at times like this, right? You have to look a bird in the hand versus a uh, two in the bush. The bird in the hand is the bonds. And it doesn't say that the yield is good, but right now it's saying we can get four and a half to four and three quarters for 20 years on double A paper, completely tax exempt. That's the bird in the hand. So the two in the bush, if we're going to allocate more than what we have in fixed income, we better have an economic reason, a very simple one. 
Because remember, when we're talking about wealthy families, it's not important just that the matriarch or the patriarch gets this. You can have 40 or 50 people in the downline of a family. This has to make sense to all of them. So, you know, if the basic can be more reliable than the complex, I think you want to master the basics and master it before you put a dollar capital at risk. And that begs the question, you you alluded to this earlier about the endowment model and your presentation talks about Yale and Harvard and, and these kind of high-flying endowments with their massive allocation towards alternatives. I mean, unfortunately, especially within the pension world, you mentioned kind of what's happening in Britain. They're going to have to double and triple down on those yeah. alternatives to make up for the losses and the expected returns that they're not going to get elsewhere in their portfolio. And I, I mean, you're not going to give financial advice on this, but I mean, it does not seem like the prudent thing for families to follow that game plan. You know, un- unless it's a business where the family has expertise, as we've talked about, a lot of the IPI families have maintained a significant piece in, in the industry that they understand. And guess what? That's probably going to be the most successful asset for the family for that reason. But the reason they took chips off the table and were looking to diversify is they were looking to dampen the risk on a significant portion. And again, all we're saying is it ought to meet the litmus test of being at least as good as a quality business that we would go in and buy 100%. So obviously a lot going on in the market. There's a lot of fear, anxiety. I don't think I've experienced such negative investor sentiment since I've been kind of in this world post 20, 2008. Are you buying the market currently? Are you, are, are you allocating to, to bonds? And again, I'm not asking for advice, but how are you viewing asset allocation in today's market? Well, we're big believers, Brian, in active management for the, for the reason that we've been talking about for the last half hour. We want to be able to ensure, just like you would if you were trying to nail a bread or a pizza crust, all the components that go into that finished product, we want to make sure that we've got our finger on it. And so there's so much in these markets. And, you know, you go back to that week of St. Patrick's Day of 2020, and you can't really find anyone that'll raise their hand and say, hey, I sold out my portfolio. But you look at the trading volumes and you look at the price action and somebody did. Okay. We haven't outed them. They haven't, they haven't raised their hand yet, but we know that investors now have a tremendous amount of leverage, even with their 401ks to liquidate with the press of a button on their phone. So on any given day, especially going back to 2020, if just two or 3% of market participants hit the sell button on the, on the same day, and then the rest of us are sitting it out or we're on the buy side. Those investors are pretty much saying, I will sell at any price. And so we want to protect ourselves first by making sure I think a, a family or a foundation needs to have that next three, four, five years of spending or cash flow not exposed to risk so that they can continue their mandate in life, whether it's living life or, or philanthropy. That's number one. And then, you know, we are aggressive with these yields simply because. We're seeing great, great risk-adjusted yields in the bond market that haven't been seen for a long time. With respect to the equity portfolio, unfortunately, quality businesses go down in bear markets when investors are panicking, right? We go back to June, and it's pretty clear if you talk to the big Wall Street trading desks that the first thing that happens is you get these leveraged hedge funds, leveraged investors, and you, you have a piece of news that hits the tape that nobody was looking for. They're overexposed. They get sold out, right? And so you've got this price action. 
and a little bit of hubris kicks in and you've got people buying the dip. And then what happened yesterday with the UK pension, nobody was saying that there was going to be an inversion of spreads in the UK that had caused the, the Bank of, of England to have to prop up the bond market. No, nobody was on the tape Monday saying that that was going on. So you, you have to look at the companies that you buy and recognize that you have duration risk with them too. And even though, you know, $220 a share on the S&P at a 3,600 level, that is a 6% earnings yield. But remember, look at every other 20-year period that preceded this. There's been 6% decades and multiple decades that included 30% drawdowns, 50% drawdowns. And, and while we're on that with historical returns, I think we, we have to admit if the earnings yield now on stocks is six, we have to admit that it's a tougher case to build that you're going to see 10 or 11% dumbfounding long-term from here. I was just printing out some of these 20-year vintages. There hasn't been a, a, a 10% compounding 20-year period since 1988. Every single rolling 20-year period since 1988 has produced something less than 10%, nine, six, six, seven, six, six, seven, seven. And within those, by the way, six or 7% compounding, you've got a 50% decline in 2000, a 50% decline in 2008. You got the 38% decline in 2020. And so taking a muted risk, appetite for risk right now, and just saying, look, our litmus test is, is a little higher um, right now. We, we need to own quality. You have to ask yourself, if we were having this conversation, you just sold the company for a hundred million. Niall, what do I do? There's all these things out there. There's movie theater companies that look like they're bankrupt. There's bulldozers knocking down their things, people walking out with the chairs and money managers saying we should buy them. You scratch your head and you're like, I sold my company to buy a bankrupt movie theater or to buy a cryptocurrency fund. And, and, and you say, is this the time to speculate where we cannot count the widgets? I say no right where we are right now for all those reasons, the idol knows that we, we would all have to admit are there mean that we have to be focused on the quality in every sector. So you obviously are a student of history. You've gone back. You mentioned the 20s. We talked about multiple down and up cycles. If you were to draw a parallel to what's happening today, what do you think the closest historical corollary would be? Well, it, it's hard not to look at 1966. And, and look at that period and say, wow, what would happen if equities were actually flat from a price standpoint for 16 years? Because that's exactly what happened. Now, by the way, that's, that's what happened from 2000 to 2011. But you know, the corollary right now is that when you look at that huge spike in interest rates that happened in the 70s, all the way to that crescendo in 1982, Remember, to some extent, there are things that cannot happen. We were going off the Bretton Woods agreement, right? Going off the gold standard. We had OPEC really had its fist around us with respect to crude production. Those things don't, don't exist anymore. And, and by the way, you know, the Fed now has learned its lesson and we know that we can't hold tight monetary policy. We can't ignore inflation. I think they actually thought that the inflation wasn't that big of a deal, right? Because people saw wages growing in nominal terms. It just, it just wasn't translating into more goods and services for the family. So we've learned a lot about inflation. We don't have this issue of the decoupling from the gold standard. Crude issue has almost been turned around. Let's say you get back to the normalcy of, 
of, of the last decade, the natural, natural gas component of that. So those are negatives that brought us to that terrible spot in 1982 that, that I don't think are as bad. And, and, and that's the reason why you can look at a portfolio right now and it doesn't feel like we're steering into the abyss. It's not 2000, right? We're not 30 times earnings. It's not 1929 with the taxi drivers leveraged in their brokerage accounts. So again, it's, uh, it's, it's one of those times where, and you hear this with, with the pension funds, they're saying, look, we haven't been able to pull off a 7% compounded return forever. We have to feed it with one, one and a half. So maybe that's one of the things, you know, with planning for families, you know, don't make your plans for any of these assets or these entities based upon rosy assumptions that really have no economic tether to, to reality. Err on the side of, you know, with your family foundation, it's got to give away 5%. And so look at those known outflows for the next three or four years and don't put yourself in a position to have to sell a stock or a bond under duress to meet the normal cash flow needs of either the family or the foundation. Because that's, that's, that's a given. There's going to be volatility. Don't put yourself in a position to have to sell an asset under duress ever. You obviously are <laughs> in a lot of high touch relationships. You are bringing in a lot of data points, both historical and, and future. You're tracking the news. There's a lot of I would imagine anxiety within your client base today. What's something that you do personally to bring yourself a little bit of peace and balance in your daily life, considering all of the chaos going on around you? I could probably use a tad bit more balance and a tad bit less coffee. But do you mean outside of outside of business? Just how do you keep it between the rails, considering everything that you got going on in your life? I and mean, how do you digest all this information and, and keep sane without, you know? Well... It's, it's, it's the recognition, Brian, that every dollar has a finite place where it's going to go, right? Every dollar that you and I have is going to be spent on a unit of consumption. It's going to be gifted away to charity. It's going to be gifted to a family member, right? We're not going to take it with us. So nailing the financial plan that, that should be a part of every, every investor's playbook is that you, you look at those those units of consumption, whether they're philanthropic gifts or spending, and ensure that you know the ship can still make it to the other side, and and that goes back to portfolio cash flow. Obviously, when you're you're putting that portfolio to risk, and you've got four and a half percent on bonds, and you've got one seventy to one eighty as the dividends on quality companies, and even if we go into a deeper recession, we know that dividends of blue chip companies are going to compound at a rate higher than inflation. So now you've got a situation where you can see three, four percent of cash flow from the portfolio. And you can say, like you would with the college fund for the little baby, is that volatility? Is the market price of the portfolio in 2026 a big deal to me? Yes or no? Because if we can feed the cash flow, maybe it isn't. And as as far as sanity and 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 balance, a third of our of our families are are very philanthropic. That is a, a, a huge joy to, to, to harvest capital from portfolios and turn them in, into something tangible. We happen to share something in common. I know your wife, Jesse, was involved with that, that group over in, in, in Western Kenya. It's, it's really something when you can take, you know, 25 or $30,000 and you can make water bubble up from the earth when it has never done that in the history of our planet over millions of years that 
your economic success as a family, your willingness to share it with people can create, cut infant mortality in half, bring drinking water to these communities. So it's hard not to get jacked up about that. And you can't throw in the towel and say, well, there's a bear market or there's a recession. We're going home. Those, those people need you, right? The, the folks in Lawala or, or, you know, the, the little clinic that our family's involved with about an hour east of there, they, they need us. And so the philanthropic part of it, you know, we've got clients right now that have responded in a big way to these disasters. And rather than be surprised by these things, they planned ahead and said, there's going to be earthquakes, tsunamis, hurricanes, famines, right? You look into 2023, that's the next storm coming. Let's not be surprised by that. Let's lean into it and let's use this success that we've had in, in the investment portfolio and let's let it translate into real outcomes for people. That's exciting regardless of the economy. You never disappoint, my friend. You brought the energy today. I love it. We're actually hosting the Luwala board meeting kickoff cocktail party this evening. My wife will be in board meetings all weekend. And so we are pushing forward on that front. Niall, it's been awesome to spend time with you. If people are interested in learning more about your books, your writing, your keynote, the work that you do, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? NiallGannon.com, N-I-A-L-L, G-A-N-N-O-N.com, NiallGannon.com. Both of the books are on Amazon. Most of the links to my previous lectures are on there. And when there is a, a notable event like this 40th anniversary of the 1982 um, treasury, I'll, I'll usually blog post something about that. And, I, and I'd ask anyone who's, who's researching or studying the younger listeners that are on here, be willing to challenge conventional wisdom. And if you think something's not right and there's a gap in the information in the public database. Lean into that. Go do it and start a new debate. Love it. Niall, we'll have to do it again soon. See what we got right and wrong. I appreciate it. And I look forward to seeing you soon, my friend. Thank you, Brian. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm in the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.